0: This is a recording of Proper Names and Political Claims, Semitic Echoes as Foundations for Claims to the Nephite Throne, by Lyle Hamblin, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Lyle Hamblin. Proper Names and Political Claims, Semitic Echoes as Foundations for Claims to the Nephite Throne. Abstract. The Book of Mormon contains examples of phonemes in character names that resemble Semitic root words. The possible meanings of the names and their timing in the Book of Mormon narrative provide a deeper level of context to the Nephite political challenges in the books of Mosiah through 3rd Nephi. Specifically, the English phonemes for the Hebrew and Arabic root word for king, MLK, appear in character names in the Book of Mormon narrative, when the people of Zarahemla, who are descended from Mulek, the last king of Judah, are discovered by the Nephites in the Book of Omni. King names then appear frequently during, during the time in the narrative in which there are attempts to re-establish a monarchy during the early reign of the judges. King names disappear after, quote, Moroni put an end to those kingmen that there were not any known by the appellation of kingmen, end quote. The presence and timing of these king names suggests that the Mulekite claim to the local Israelite throne resonated rhetorically through Nephite politics for over a century and was violently contested in the multiple civil and external wars in the books of Alma through 3rd Nephi. Readers of the Book of Mormon are exposed to over 300 proper names of of characters and places. Many of the names are biblical names or direct copies of biblical names, but many of the names in the Book of Mormon are unique to that book. While early critics once attributed the unique names to the active imagination of Joseph Smith Jr., the translator, English language scholars of the last century have had more access to ancient Near Eastern texts and look at the unique names as evidence that supports the historicity of the Book of Mormon as an ancient text. For an early example, in 1957, Hugh Nibley gave his opinion that the names of Lehi's children were, quote, pure Arabic, end quote, and that some of the unique proper names in the Book of Mormon resembled, quote, Egyptian and Hebrew, along with a sprinkling of Hittite, Arabic, and Greek names, end quote. Scholars have built on that initial work, and much has now been written about linguistic evidence for Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon authenticity. Summarizing this work, Kyler Rasmussen writes that, quote, These efforts have yielded dozens of plausible Semitic and Egyptian etymological connections and dozens of meaningful wordplays that suggest that these names were far from random selections from Joseph's brain, end quote. We will discuss material that implicitly provides evidence that can contribute to the conversation of authenticity. However, this is mainly focused on understanding the narrative of the Book of Mormon more deeply. It will, therefore, focus on describing linguistic patterns that add to the work of other scholars to make connections between seemingly unrelated events and themes. These connections help further the work to more, quote, fully comprehend the reality, unquote, that Mormon was trying to convey in the Book of Mormon, quote, because unconscious and unstated background knowledge and off-stage actions that are present only by implication will sometimes be the key to a fuller understanding of an intended meaning, End quote. Most of the names addressed herein are not strictly biblical, and the Book of Mormon is the only source for them. Therefore, they are not necessarily ancient Semitic names. However, these names share a phonetic resonance with the sounds MLK, which, forms the root word for king in three central Semitic languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic. Previous authors have analyzed some of these names from a a Hebrew and Aramaic perspective, but not from an Arabic perspective. We will first examine this root, then give examples of its appearance in the Book of Mormon, then describe the Mulekites who introduce the root into the narrative. And finally, address each of the examples in chronological order while explaining the significance that the name contributes to the narrative. Roots, Patterns, and Forms in Semitic Languages Some background into the structure of two central Semitic languages is necessary to see the importance of the names in the Book of Mormon. The parts of language that are important in this case are roots, patterns, and forms. Roots are the core of a word that carry the essential meaning. Nearly all languages utilize roots that can be added to or changed to give additional meaning to the word. In English, we may take the word king and consider it the root of the adjective kingly or the possession kingdom. In Semitic languages, most nouns can be broken down into roots and patterns. Roots are usually consonants and patterns are usually vowels, with some exceptions. For the relevant examples, the Aramaic and Hebrew root word for king, pronounced Melek, has three block letters for the consonants that are rendered mlk written right to left in English. The Arabic word for king, malik, has the cursive letters of the English phonemes mlk also written right to left. Writing the short vowels a and i is often optional. Changing vowels in the pattern can add part of the meaning of the word. Change that. Changing vowels in the pattern can change part of the meaning of the word. For example, if a writer added an A sound to the end of the MLK root word in Arabic, it would become Malika and mean Queen in English. Adding another M sound to the beginning of the root changes it to Kingdom, Mamlaka. Words like property and dominion can be written in both languages with this root. Herein, the MLK root will be evident many times in proper names, and its meaning of king will explicitly deepen the context in the historical narrative of the Book of Mormon. Examples of MLK names Table 1 details examples of the MLK root that are unique to the Book of Mormon. MLK root names that are biblical such as those found in several of the Isaiah chapters of 1st and 2nd Nephi and the name Melchizedek found in Alma 13:14 and the excerpts of Malachi in 3rd Nephi 24 are excluded from this discussion because their Semitic origins are already well known and they do not refer to characters or places that play roles in the narrative of the Book of Mormon. Table 1 MLK names in the Book of Mormon the left column has a list of names, the center column has a short identification for them, and the third column has an example of a reference. I will read the left column Amalekai one, Amalekai two, Mulek, Amlusai, Amlesites, Melik, Amulek, Mulekai, Amalekites, Amalekia, Amalekites. Mulek, Kingmen, and Mulek. This is not the first attempt that scholars have made at linking the MLK phonemes in some of these names in the Book of Mormon to the Semitic MLK root. The Book of Mormon Onomasticon, an online Wikipedia style resource that summarizes the work of many authors on the possible meanings of the unique Book of Mormon names, mentions the possibility that the MLK root gives meaning to some of these names in Hebrew, but some scholars hesitate to accept the names that start with an A as Hebrew MLK names. They may not have considered the possibility that the MLK root does not need to be strictly Hebrew, but can be descended from Central Semitic languages generally. Broadening the linguistic lens used to analyze the names allows us to incorporate many of those names that start with an A. In Arabic, the root is not damaged by that initial vowel in several cases, which could be a sound like an Arabic hamzated aleph, as will now be shown. For example, the MLK root can be put into an Arabic verb or adjective form. This requires some explanation. There are ten main verb forms in Arabic that can modify the roots, with the first form being the bare root. Much like changing a noun with a pattern of vowels, one can change the meaning of the verb by adding sounds to change its form. Changing the form of a verb, according to one of the ten forms, can change it from an active to a passive verb, or indicate causation, show reflexivity, or evince intensity. For example, using the MLK root as a verb in Arabic can mean things similar to Possess, be master of, to rule over. The first and fourth forms of the MLK root would make a verb that could be transliterated into amluku, amlaka, or simply amlek, which could mean "I'm taking over" in the first form and "to take possession" in the fourth form. Similarly, using that root in an adjective, amlek, can mean "one who possesses most." Words transliterated into amlek can also mean possessors, possessions, or angelic messengers of God. One could maintain a similar meaning of the word even when adding or changing short vowels, as in pronouncing the E as an I, or separating the M and L with an A or U. Placing the MLK phonemes into an Arabic verb form, or using them in an adjective, is significant, because the MLK Semitic root, now begins to be more visible in the above names that do not start with an English M. The previous omission of Arabic as a contributing lens for analyzing these names was natural for earlier scholars. The widely known Israelite heritage of the characters in the Book of Mormon make Hebrew the natural choice for scholars who are searching for meaning in those names. However, there are several reasons why Arabic could also contribute to a legitimate framework. First, in proto-Semitic, which linguistic anthropologists considered to be the ancestor to both Semitic languages, the MLK root can have an A sound at the beginning for the noun God. Second, Hebrew and Arabic originated close together and are related. Early scholarship described the relationship in close terms. Explaining the culture surrounding Lehi and his family, Hugh Nibley wrote that the tribe of Manasseh of which Lehi and his descendants were a part was closest to Arab tribes and also had ties to the Egyptians. And there are textual clues in the book of First Nephi indicating that Lehi may have had a strong connection to both groups. It has long been known that most Israelites in Judea in the 6th century BC spoke Aramaic, which was a central Semitic language that was more closely related to Hebrew than it was to Arabic. However, Nibley wrote that, quote, In Lehi's day, The Aramaic and the Arabic spoken in the cities were almost identical, end quote, due to their having similar pronunciation. Recent scholarship similarly broadens the relevant linguistic field. Brian Stubbs conducted a major study of uto aztecan languages and found commonalities between uto aztecan words and the same words in Egyptian, Phoenician, and Arabic. He reached some important conclusions. Quote, some Semitists are now suspecting that some northern Israelites may have kept their original Aramaic, or were bilingual, adding Hebrew but keeping their Aramaic. Hebrew was not the original language of the Israelites, as many suppose. Abraham and Laban, the Aramaean, and his daughters Leah and Rachel, the mothers of Israel, were all Aramaic speakers. And according to the Utoaz Tekken data, the Lehi-Ishmael party's language seems to have been quite Aramaic-like, or Hebrew-Aramaic mix. The Mulekite language may have been Hebrew when fleeing Jerusalem, but their probable passage on a Phoenician vessel had them shifting to the dialect of the majority, the Phoenician majority, end quote. Stubb's studies found over 1,000 pairs of words that had apparently survived not only the nearly 1,000 years that transpired between Lehi's journey from the ancient Near East and the Nephite destruction, but also nearly 1,600 years that has passed since then. This incredible resilience of language illustrated by Stubbs could hypothetically account for the use of an initial A sound that does not damage the MLK root in Book of Mormon names, that was present in Proto-Semitic before Lehi and is still present in Arabic today. For these reasons and other reasons concerning the timing and use of the words in the textual narrative to be explained below, one should consider it probable that these names are linguistic descendants of MLK root Semitic words generally and not require them to comply strictly with Hebrew. Significance of MLK names As will be explained in detail in the following pages, The MLK route appears in proper character names with surprising regularity in a specific part of the storyline in the Book of Mormon. Then it completely stops. This period begins with the appearance of the Mulekites in Omni chapter 1. The MLK route continues to occur frequently during the reign of the judges. At that time, the Nephites were often struggling to retain a free government against groups that sought to reestablish a monarchy. As explained below, there are strong reasons to expect Mulekites to contend for an Israelite throne. These MLK names were no longer used for people after, quote, Moroni put an end to those kingmen that there were not any known by the appellation of kingmen, Thereafter, Mulekites, who are attempting to reestablish monarchy over the Nephites, transition to Jaredite-inspired names beginning in Helaman chapter 1. It will become clear why this correlation is not likely accidental and how linking the MLK name to the Mulekites and linking Mulekites to attempts at re-establishing a king over the Nephites deepens the discernible political-historical narrative of the books of Mosiah through Mormon. First, it is necessary to briefly describe what is already known about the Mulekites. The Mulekites, Heirs to the Throne of David The literature specifically about Mulekites is limited. The word Mulekite is not actually in the text of the Book of Mormon but is used in church and academic literature as a synonym for the, quote, people of Zarahemla, end quote. The term Mulekites will be used here because it is not only shorter, but it also has the MLK phonemes in it. John L. Sorensen wrote the most complete report about the Mulekites, and it reveals much historical background into their origins and role. To summarize what is relevant, Zedekiah was the last king of Israel before it was destroyed in 586 B.C., Zedekiah had a child named Mulek, who with others escaped the destruction of Jerusalem. These refugees were eventually led by the Lord to an area to the north of where Lehi landed in the American continent. Sorensen emphasizes that the name Mulek has the Hebrew root MLK in it and indicates that it is historically possible that Zedekiah could have had a child of that name. In fact, Mulek is likely the same person as the Malchia mentioned in Jeremiah 38.6. The fact that the descendants of Mulek could have claimed direct lineage from King David and the last king of Israel will be a recurring theme in describing the relationship between MLK names and the political claims of Nephite dissident groups. Sorensen described the Mulekites as a likely source of idolatry and perhaps political trouble for the Nephites. However, he concluded that descendants of Nephite kings would be more likely to lead attempts to restore the monarchy because their claims to the throne were more recent. Val Larson, writing two decades more recently, notes that there were contentions over this issue between the Nephites and the Mulekites in the days of King Benjamin. Quote, But those tensions seem to diminish over time, end quote, until the reign of the judges reignites the issue during the Book of Alma. We join the conversation at that point, arguing that the given linguistic and contextual evidence should give more weight to the likelihood that Mulekite acquiescence to Nephite political leadership was tenuous and temporary, and that their claims to the Israelite throne were used as a rhetorical basis for repeated wars for a century. The significance of king names in chronological order. We now examine instances of the MLK route chronologically according to Table 1. There appears to be a clear connection between the appearance of the phonemes of this root and the presence of Mulekites as actors in the narrative, especially when there are efforts to return to a monarchical form of government. This correlation is evidence that Mulekites probably advanced repeated claims to the Nephite throne and likely made explicit claims that were based on their royal heritage as descendants of King Zedekiah of the Old World. Amalekai and Mulek Amalekai is the first MLK name mentioned for a character who has a role in the Book of Mormon narrative. Writing after his father, Abinadam, Amalekai is the final narrator in the Book of Omni. His entry into the second plates of Nephi comes after the entries of many generations of previous authors had become successively shorter, probably due to lack of space. He breaks the pattern of short and minor entries on the plates of Nephi to highlight the escape of a man named Mosiah and, quote, as many Nephites as would hearken to the voice of the Lord, end quote. They escaped from the land Nephi that their people had inhabited for several hundred years. While fleeing into the wilderness, presumably from the Lamanites, these refugees discovered a people that were called after the name of their leader, Zarahemla. These people had, quote, come out from Jerusalem at the time that Zedekiah, king of Judah, was carried away captive into Babylon and were brought by the hand of the Lord across the great waters into the land where Mosiah discovered them, end quote. These are the Mulekites. The appearance of the name Amalekite in the chapter when the Mulekites are introduced is not likely coincidental. Enough time had passed between Abinadum's and Amalekite's entries on the plates that Amalekite could be writing well after these events had transpired. He could then be named after a Mulekite if Abinadam had married Amulekite and named his son to indicate this descent. Hypothetically, in this name and in those to follow, the MLK route could be desirable for any parents wishing to put a reminder of royal descent upon their child. In this case, a Amulekite mother would be a reasonable source of that wish. There is a question of whether Amalekite was born before the time that Mosiah led Nephites away from the land of Nephi, making it possible that His MLK name could be an adopted title or a peculiar coincidence, but it is unlikely. Amalekai stated that, quote, I, Amalekai, was born in the days of Mosiah, and I have lived to see his death, and Benjamin, his son, reigneth in his stead, end quote. As is the case today, as in the Latin phrase Anno Domini Nostri Jesu Christi, 2024, Time then was often counted from the reigns of individuals, see Matthew 2, 1, Luke 1, 5, or Luke 3, 1. Additionally, there is no indication that Mosiah I was king over the Nephites before he had a group of refugees follow him, and he was, quote, made king over the land of Zarahemla, end quote. Like Alma I, Mosiah I could have been a dissenter from Nephite politics, whose religious leadership expanded to include political leadership once he isolated a large group of followers. Perhaps only then did he become a candidate for political leadership over the people of Zarahemla. Like Lehi, he could have taken the plates of brass from the political authority, or he could have been the one responsible for them without being king, much like Abinadam kept records though he was not king. Therefore, the phrase, quote, days of Mosiah, end quote, likely places Amalekai's lifespan to the time after Mosiah the first became king over the combined Nephite-Mulekite peoples, which in turn means that Amalekai's name is likely intentionally, not coincidentally, a Mulekite name. The next Amalekai, Amalekai the second, comes to the story nine years later, when a descendant of Zarahemla named Ammon took three of his brethren end quote, to check on those Nephites who had returned to the land of Nephi. He plays no further specific role in the story. But he is possibly a descendant of Zarahemla because Ammon was a descendant of Zarahemla and Amalekai II is explicitly referred to as one of his brethren. This possibility that he is a descendant of a previous king of the Mulekites who was a descendant of Zedekiah reinforces the connection between Mulekites and the MLK route. It is unlikely that these two Amalekites are the same person. The first Amalekai stated that he was about to die in Omni 130, and the men who went with Ammon were described as, quote, strong, end quote. It is not completely clear if his brotherhood with Ammon is literal or religious. If it was literal, it would be understandable if the second Amalekai was a nephew or other relative of the first and wanted to go find the brother of the first who had gone to the land of Nephi. Of If this is the case it could indicate that Abinadam might have married an immediate relative of Zarahemla. The second Amalekai cannot be a son or descendant of the first because the first Amalekai had no children. Mulek is the next MLK name mentioned in the narrative. He is mentioned in Mosiah 25.2, see also Omni 1.15 and Helaman 6.10, as a descendant of, of the king Zedekiah who escaped Jerusalem. He is mentioned here because the people of Zarahemla, which included his descendants, are noted as being more numerous than the Nephites who were under King Mosiah. It seems safe to assume that he is the son of Zedekiah later spoken of in Helaman 6.10 as explained above. According to Royal Skousen, The printer's manuscript in Mosiah 25.2 has the spelling Mulek, which the 1830 typesetter changed to Moloch, For the 1879 edition, Orson Pratt changed mulek to mulek in the LDS text, under the reasonable assumption that the individual named is the mulek mentioned in the book of Helaman. This example of flexibility with transliterating the spelling into English is further indication that the names discussed herein are possibly MLK root names. Mosiah Ends the Monarchy Before more king names are discussed, it is important to note the political position the Nephites now found themselves in at the end of the Book of Mosiah. Appreciating their position will give context to these important parts of the Book of Mormon narrative and will be relevant in understanding the importance of further MLK names. The MLK naming pattern helps to indicate that the Mulekite claim to the Nephite throne was likely the political root of the multiple external and civil wars in the books of Alma through 3rd Nephi, as explained below. While the beginning of the book of Mosiah highlights the spiritual unification of the Nephites and Mulekites, the end of the book of Mosiah highlights the political transition from a united monarchy to a constitutional democracy that initiates a steady flow of violent political contests. King Mosiah II finds himself without willing heirs to the throne, as all his sons had chosen to go on missions to the Lamanites. Mosiah II then makes a proclamation to radically change the political system and transition away from monarchy. This Nephite transition to a reign of judges is made much more complicated because of the existence of the Mulekites. In establishing the reign of the judges, Mosiah was not only taking the opportunity to make the best out of his son's unwillingness to take the throne, he was also possibly trying to prevent the spiritual and political problems that the Nephites would be faced with if the Mulekites were allowed to influence the selection of the next king. The Mulekite political influence would be problematic for several interrelated reasons. The Mulekites were most of the population, had a strong heritage of monarchy, carefully remembered their genealogy, and had a valid claim to any throne among the Israelites that might be available, should any Israelite king find his sons unwilling to inherit the throne, the Mulekites could claim the throne of David, being descended from the tribe of Judah and its last king. Indeed, if the Mulekites had returned to Jerusalem, they could have rightly contested that throne. Mulekites could have felt justified in contesting any available throne among any other Israelite tribe as well there is another aspect of establishing the reign of the judges upon Mulekites that was possibly challenging. Ending monarchy in favor of judges would leave this branch of the house of Israel resembling the time of the judges in Israelite history that preceded the establishment of the throne of David. This would possibly look like a political regression that would dishonor both King David's legacy and his present descendants, the Mulekites. For these reasons, Mulekites could justifiably claim leadership of the Nephites. In comparison, the Nephites were from relatively lowly Manasseh and Ephraim through intermarriage with the children of Ishmael. Further, they could not even claim the birthright leadership within the descendants of Lehi due to Nephi being younger than Laman. Potential political rhetoric that incorporated the above elements would require immense skill to circumvent. These details could have made the transition extremely difficult had his sons publicly renounced the throne before Mosiah had prepared the people's minds for an alternative regime. As will be seen later, the combination of these Mulekite and Lamanite claims possibly motivated several conflicts, expanding civil wars between the Mulekites and Nephites into external wars between Nephites and Lamanites. This brings up the question of why the Mulekites would have agreed to Nephite governance in the first place. Omni 117 states that, quote, they had had many wars and serious contentions, end quote, among themselves, quote, from time to time, end quote. It would be possible that if their society were to have a chance to end their contentions through a neutral option, it might seem desirable, especially if that neutral option, was a long-lost related tribe that could restore their original language and records to them. Also, intermarriage between the leading families of the Nephites and the Mulekites would, would likely be a helpful prerequisite for political unification of the two peoples. As Val Larson suggests, it is likely that either Mosiah I married into Zarahemla's family, or at least had his son Benjamin do so, and that Mosiah second was likely at least half-Mulekite. To Mosiah II's aid in these complications, he had at least three major sources of unity for his people that eased the transition to judges in the face of potential Mulekite claims to the throne. First, King Benjamin had already converted the Mulekites to the same general belief system based on Christ during his own departing political transition sermon. This system included renaming of their society after Christ. This would hopefully allow them to forget their tribal identities. His speech also attempted to prevent political conflicts. As Val Larson explained, those spiritual themes predominate in the sermon he delivers on this occasion. The political subtext in Benjamin's coronation speech is unmistakable. He condemns open rebellion and urges his people to submit to the rule of Mosiah II as they have submitted to his rule. He equates the commands of Mosiah II with the commands of God, making obedience to Mosiah II and the maintenance of peace a religious duty. He suggests that any who listen to Satan and contend against Mosiah II, as some contended against Benjamin himself, will risk the damnation of their soul, end quote. Looking ahead, the Book of Alma takes as its Logos this narrative that political rebellion is the same as spiritual rebellion. Once this narrative had become hegemonic, those who wished to contend politically in the Book of Alma of necessity also contended spiritually. It became a clear pattern that those who initiated violence against the political system were also targeting the church. The habit of violently fighting over the rights to spiritual and political leadership was only minimized among the Mulekites. While there were popular strong kings like Mosiah I, Benjamin, and Mosiah second, a later reign of judges may have been an invitation for people who would have otherwise only been spiritual dissenters to add a political justification to their rebellion. When King Benjamin had, quote, desired to know of his people if they believed the words which he had spoken unto them, they all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us, End quote. While this did not permanently erase idolatry, the believers remained a majority of the population during the reign of Mosiah II, which was also mostly peaceful, quote, Now it came to pass that there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin, being little children at the time he spake unto his people, and they did not believe the tradition of their fathers, and they were a separate people as to their faith, and remained so ever after, even in their carnal and sinful state, for they would not call upon the Lord their God. And now in the reign of Mosiah, they were not half so numerous as the people of God, but because of the dissensions among the brethren, they became more numerous. End quote. The fact that the unbelievers were still a minority during the time of Mosiah second assisted his efforts at changing their laws. This pattern of dissensions only expanded into politics after Mosiah II was gone. The second fact that assisted Mosiah II's political transition was that the Nephites and Mulekites considered themselves the same people, even though they gathered separately for official events. It is very likely that there were residual language and cultural barriers that made the separation natural. Their unity was likely provided by their church and their shared political leader. When these tethers later weakened, this opened a vacuum and invited division. The third fact that helped Mosiah II convince his people to accept the ending of the monarchy was that he was trusted completely by his people. Quote, They did esteem him more than any other man, for they did not look upon him as a tyrant who was seeking for gain. For he had not exacted riches of them, neither had he delighted in the shedding of blood. But he had established peace in the land, and he had granted unto his people that they should be delivered from all manner of bondage. Therefore, they did esteem him, yea, exceedingly, beyond measure, end quote. Mosiah's explanation of why judges would be more desirable than the king in chapter 29 was not only true, but also a public relations success that specifically avoided mentioning Mulekite claims to the throne. Instead, It emphasized his own children as the potential troublemakers, sketched potential downsides of a hypothetical wicked king, and used an example of an actual wicked Nephite king. Assuming the record of Mosiah 29 is complete, Mosiah did not explicitly state that the spiritual implications of an unrighteous Mulekite king taking the throne was a more important issue than restoring kingship to its proper tribe and lineage but it is clear given the context that this was possibly a problem that he was trying to prevent. This success was short-lived, as the immense trust in Mosiah did not transfer well to the institution that he left them with. As explained in the next section, it apparently took only five years for the first challenge to Nephite political authority to arise. While the Lamanites made external claims to Nephite leadership roles based on birthright, there are no indications that the Nephites had any civil contentions over their own throne until after the discovery of the Mulekites. The explicit linking of external and civil strife in the Book of Mormon narrative then begins in the Book of Alma. While the Book of Alma will end the MLK pattern of character names for the possible reasons described below, it will not end the pattern of Mulekite claims to the Nephite throne. Amlicai and Amlicite Claims Amlici joins the narrative in Alma chapter 2 as a wicked man who seeks to use the newly established powers of a democratic majority to erase those very powers and return the people to a monarchy and place himself at the top of it. There is no record of what Amlicai said to get people to support him, or what rhetoric the quote wonderful contentions end quote that took place before the vote were predicated on but clearly he intended to destroy the church, and he quickly gathered many to support him. This sudden and dramatic shift, seemingly without explicit cause, is an instance of missing context that can be informed by considering the Mulekite dynamic. When Mosiah II ended the monarchy, the top political position was filled by an individual who was ethnically and politically non Mulikite. Alma II was not only likely to have not been an ethnic Mulekite, but was also from a group that had dissented away politically from the combined Nephite-Mulekite society. Zenith, who had led this Nephite group, was, quote, overzealous, end quote, to lead several people to re-inhabit the land of Nephi, which is remarkable considering that it represents a choice to re-enter the Lamanite sphere of influence, and abandoned the Mulekite one. Evidently, quote, when Zenith saw that which was good among the Lamanites, end quote, it seemed preferable to what the combined Nephite-Mulekite society had become. Alma II's possible status was completely non-Mulekite, descended from the anti-Mulekite dissenters. Yet, he was chosen to lead a society that had Mulekite members that had descended from the line of David. This could have been interpreted as a slight against Amlici and fellow Mulekites. Feeling blocked from their perceived rightful royal status, some families among the Mulekites would only need a spark to ignite a rebellion. Um, Amma II's actions as chief judge and high priest likely gave aggrieved Mulekites ammunition for their propaganda against him. Nehor's execution in Alma chapter 1 likely contributed to the rhetoric that Amlici used to justify rebellion. Nehor had begun to preach ideas that gained wide reception, and that would prove hard to extricate from Mulekite groups in the book of Alma. Nehor killed a xenophite-descended church leader, Gideon, and was condemned to death by Alma the Second. Mulekites could have reinterpreted this execution for propaganda purposes, as an official use of force to persecute their Nehrite beliefs. A second official action of Alma II was also probably used against him politically. He was using the state to punish those who were not following church teachings. As the church members in the combined Mulekite-Nephite society became, quote, far more wealthy than those who did not belong to their church, end quote, non-members were reverting to, quote, Indulging themselves in sorceries, and in idolatry or idleness, and in babblings and in envyings and strife, wearing costly apparel, being lifted up in the pride of their own eyes, persecuting, lying, thieving, robbing, committing whoredoms, and murdering, and all manner of wickedness. Nevertheless, the law was put in force upon all those who did transgress it, inasmuch as was possible, end quote. While church members could justify to themselves the use of the law against those who were sinning, it would be easy for a budding political dissident to publicly describe this as a form of using the state to enforce the will of the church, especially when both the church and the state were headed by the same person, Alma II. Attempts by dissenters to take over the government and destroy the church could involve a propagandized memory of these times, as evidence that Christians should not head the government nor be given political influence. Another action, in this case from Alma II's religious brethren, may have further been used to justify and initiate the attempted coup. Amlici appeared in the fifth year of the reign of the judges, which may have been the same year that Aaron and Mulekai arrived in the Nehrite city named Jerusalem. The arrival and preaching of representatives of the state church, could have been interpreted as a direct political and religious threat. The fact that the bearer of this threat, Aaron, was the legitimate heir to Mosiah's throne, could have been used for propaganda purposes by the Neherites to say, quote, We can no longer trust that the regime that Mosiah bequeathed us will allow us to peacefully enjoy our religion. Not even separating ourselves and creating a new city can protect us from them. We must end the Nephite influence regime to ensure our own security, end quote. That's a hypothetical quote, by the way. Enter Amlici. There were repeated attempts in the books of Alma and Helaman to destroy both the church and the system of judges. Viewing them as Mulekite political responses to Nephite influence and policy is helpful for explaining why the civil contentions in Alma were so sudden popular and debilitating for the Nephites. Amalysi had, quote, drawn away much people after him, even so much that they began to be very powerful, end quote. His supporters lost the popular vote in verse 7, quote, but Amalysi did stir up those who were in his favor to anger against those who were not in his favor. And they did consecrate Amalysi to be their king. And he commanded them that they should take up arms against their brethren, That he might subject them to him. Some scholars have doubted that Amlicai could have created so much drama in only one year. However, recognizing Amlicai as a politician who tapped into strong underlying Mulekite claims, some of which had likely been contested before, such as in Benjamin's day, allows for rapid political developments. Amlicai's followers, named Amlicites, would certainly include many Mulekites for reasons already mentioned their historical rights to the throne of David, their habit of civil wars, and their idolatry. The Nephites had none of these characteristics before they met the Mulekites, and would have the most to lose, especially their church, if their society were to return to a monarchical system and a culture dominated by Mulekites. Loss of religious rights due to Mulekite dominance might be enough to initiate a fulfillment of Mosiah II's prediction that if another took the throne, it would be possible that his son would wage a war to try and reclaim the throne. This war would not be unwarranted from the perspective of most of the people, who would want to keep the right to have a church. Amlici was only prevented from becoming king over all the people because of the, quote, people of God, end quote. The Amlicites suffered an initial defeat, then joined with an army of Lamanites and made a second attempt at defeating the Nephites. This started a pattern of civil wars between groups of Mulekites and Nephites, expanding into external wars involving Lamanites. It may at first seem odd that a group of Nephites could have joined with the Lamanites so easily, but the Lamanites had previously met and fought Mulekites, and some Mulekites had potentially dissented away to them. This makes it possible that the Amlicites could have been familiar enough with Lamanites to be ready to make an agreement with them to re-establish authority over the Nephites. For the Lamanite king, the idea that a people would reject monarchy could be considered dangerous, lest that idea spread to his own people. Also, the king of the Lamanites was with the army that encountered the Amlicites, enabling the Lamanite army to make a quicker decision to join the Amlicites. This combined force was also defeated, and Amlici was killed. This is the last reference to the Amlicites in the Book of Mormon, but perhaps only by this name. The Amalekites, another aligned group discussed later, are likely a related people. The identity of Amlicite as a Mulukite is probable, but to label the name Amlicite as an MLK name is only slightly possible. Amlicite is pronounced with an S as the final consonant, both in the English and Arabic translations but that was not always the case. First, the plural form, Amlicites, was first written with a K in the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon for the first two times it was copied. Quote, The spelling of the name Amlicite and the associated name Amlicite involves considerable complexity. Amlicite appears 16 times from Alma 2.1 through Alma 2.31. Unfortunately, The original manuscript is not extant for any of this portion of the text, but in the printer's manuscript, the name is consistently spelled Amlici and without any miswriting or immediate correction. On the other hand, the first two occurrences in the printer's manuscript of Amlesites are spelled Amlekites, but afterwards, for 25 more occurrences, we have a consistent Amlesites. End quote. Second, the current in-progress retranslation of the Book of Mormon into Arabic renders Amlici with an S sound in the last consonant, but the church's 1985 Arabic translation renders this word with a K sound. Together, these bring up the unlikely but still possible possibility that it could have been an MLK root word. The presence of the MLK root is not a requirement for considering that Amlici was a Mulekite, But, his desire to rule and his ability described above, to find a large and ready-made audience for his cause, make his identity as a Mulekite and as a descendant of David and Sedekiah probable. Melech, Amulek, and Mulokai. After the defeated Amlicites fled with the Lamanites, the next MLK name to appear is Melech, referring to the land west of Sidon where Alma had a successful missionary journey. It is possible that this was a predominantly Mulekite city based on its name. It is not likely the same place as Mulek from Alma 51, 25-26, because they are specifically described as being different places. The next MLK character name does not belong to a dissenter. It is that of Alma's famous missionary companion, Amulek. This might be the only example where an MLK character name applies to a non-Mulekite. Even though this is an exception to the claim that the MLK root is a clue to Mulekite identity, it still reinforces the concept that MLK names belong to Mulekites. This is because Amulek felt the need to specify his identity as a Nephite to Alma and his lineage as a Nephite after mentioning his name to the people of Ammonihah. He may have anticipated that people would think that he was a Mulekite. He could still have inherited his name from Mulekite ancestry on his maternal side, but he only mentioned his male ancestors. It is clear, however, that he was a highly respected member of a Mulekite city, and this was perhaps indicated by the MLK in his name. The next MLK character name, Mulekai, was Aaron's missionary companion to the Lamanites. He had been imprisoned and then later freed by Ammon and Lamoni. His relationship to the others is not clear. Instead of being an actual son of King Mosiah, he was likely a Mulekite who accompanied them, as mentioned in Mosiah 28 and Alma 17.8. Amalekite claims. The next MLK character name is the Amalekites. They join the story as resistant to conversion Nephite descenders living among the Lamanites. Without careful reading, the origins of the Amalekites are not readily apparent. By the time that Aaron and Mulekai encountered the Amalekites in Alma 21, they had joined themselves with the Amulonites to build a city named Jerusalem and had established synagogues after the order of Nehor. Jerusalem would be the most appropriate name of a Mulekite city and may indicate that a group of Mulekites had earlier decided to leave the combined Mulekite-Nephite society. In the original manuscript, Oliver Cowdery used the following varieties of spellings for the Amalekites. Amalekites with a CK, Amalekites with two Es, Amalikites with a, with an I-C-K, Amalekites, and Amalekites with an a-L-E-K. What is consistent in the spelling of these characters is the maintenance of the consonant phonemes M-L-K. Semitic vowels can be interchanged without changing the root. Again, while the M-L-K root was not recognized in the names that begin with A by scholars who were strictly using Hebrew, it can appear to be a legitimate linguistic descendant of Semitic languages more broadly as discussed earlier. Scholars have debated for a generation whether the Amalekites are the same people as the Amlicites. Some linguistic evidence tends to support uniting them, yet contextual evidence implies keeping them separate. This can remain unresolved for now, but some progress can be made regardless. For our purposes, they are politically aligned peoples who fill similar literary functions, as Mulekite dissenters from the Nephites. Connections between the dissenting groups help reinforce their identities as Mulekites. As Val Larson explained, quote, Words of Mormon 116 makes it clear that dissenters have been going over to the Lamanite side since the time of Benjamin, and the shared Neherite religion of the Amalekites-Amalekites also necessarily entails the movement of people between Jerusalem and Zarahemla, prior to the first year of the reign of judges when Alma II executed Nehor in Zarahemla. So dissenting Mulekites have been living in both locations before and after the inauguration of the reign of the judges. The fact that the uprising of the Amlicites in the land of Zarahemla was coordinated with an attack from the land of Nephi also suggests that there is an ongoing relationship between dissidents in the two lands. Relatedly, it is possible that the leader Amlici takes his name from the people he leads and who pre-exist him rather than the other way around. The next leader of the Kingmen insurgency, Amalekiah, has a remarkably similar name, again assuming an accent on the first syllable. Amalekiah may imply son of Amlici, pronounced Amlici, as Moroniha is the son of Moroni we would thus see a similar pattern in the name changes of the successive overall leaders of both the Nephite and Amlicite slash Amalekite slash armies, end quote. As explained later, perhaps Mulekite groups chose similar names to indicate their politics and religious alignment, or perhaps some of the names were used by Mormon as editorial titles. Another Mulekite Amalekites later joined the Zoramites in attempting to establish a kingdom and enslave the Nephites. This attempt to take over the Nephite government can be linked to Mulekite attempts at seizing power. The invading Lamanites teamed with Zoramites and Amalekites and were led by a man named Zerahemnah. The name Zerahemnah obviously resembles Zarahemla, the descendant of Zedekiah and the chief Mulekite Nephite city. That name hints that he is a Mulekite who may have felt justified in taking the Nephite government. Amalickiah and the Kingmen Amalickiah is the next MLK name for a person who attempted to replace the Nephite government with himself as a king. He was the head of those who rejected the teachings of Helaman after the departure of the prophet Alma II. Quote, In fact, in the original manuscript, Oliver Cowdery frequently misspelled Amalekiah as Amalekiah 28 times, and Amalekiah 21 times, end quote. Non-Arabic scholars have not reached a unified significance for his name, but in Arabic, his name is merely the word Amalekite with an Arabic nispa suffix, meaning in this case, I am from the Amalekites, or even I possess the Amalekites. This indicates that he was inheriting, or commandeering, the cause of the rebellious Mulekites, which was to return the Israelites to a kingdom under its perceived rightful heirs. Mirroring Amlici, Amalekiah's civil war detailed in Alma 43-62 through 62, soon involved the Lamanites. It then initiated a section of scripture that goes into very specific detail about how the civil and external wars were fought and eventually won by the Nephites. The tribal identity of Amalickiah seems to indicate political opportunism. Amalickiah is referred to as a, quote, Nephite by birth, and his brother Amaron defines himself in a letter to Moroni as a, quote, descendant of Zoram, whom Nephite fathers pressed and brought out of Jerusalem, end quote. To what extent their lineage was mixed with Mulekites is not specified, but is likely from the MLK root in the first name. For political purposes, Amoron explained that, quote, I am a bold Lamanite. Behold, this war hath been waged to avenge their wrongs and to maintain and to obtain their rights to the government, end quote. Unlike his brother, who probably drew on Mulekite support initially when among the Nephites, Amoron claiming the Lamanite justifications for war, which they made based on being descended from Lehi's eldest son, he had just inherited the Lamanite throne, so he adopted their grievances. Together, these brothers are justifying themselves with whatever rationale has the highest propaganda value based on their current circumstances and audience. Amalickiah and Amaron clearly saw the opportunistic value of identity politics. Their rhetoric against the Nephites was powerful. Having brought people to this hemisphere against their will, the Zoramites, robbing others of their rightful inheritance once here, the Lamanites, and then denying others their rightful claims to a throne, Mulekites. The Nephites were close to now losing their own liberty due to these brothers. This is an intersection of oppressions that the Nephites are being accused of by them. According to those who played these identity politics, the solution for this intersection of oppressions was not merely to create an alternative system to which they could repair, like the Amalekites of Alma 21, but to extend their power without limits and reduce the religious and political rights of those who are most enjoying their liberty. Parallels to today are implicit. The brothers and their followers met their match with Captain Moroni, the Nephite general, who had also previously defeated Zarahemna. Moroni, quote, knew that Amaron had a perfect knowledge of his fraud, yea, he knew that Amaron knew that it was not a just cause that had caused him to wage a war against the people of Nephi, quote. Moroni recognized the fraud in their claims, and saw these claims as a potentially catastrophic threat. Moroni's response was radical and instigated changes to Nephite Muchite naming patterns as described next. Moroni targets MLK Captain Moroni executed the few Amalakiahites that refused to support the free government after the initial defeat of these royalists, Alma 4635. This cleansing of the inner vessel was then repeated twice more during this extended civil war in Alma 51 and 629 upon groups that were appropriately called, quote, king men, end quote. The antagonists were named kingmen, not merely for it to make sense to us in English, but because these people likely used names that contained the MLK root. Perhaps Mormon could have chosen to write this name label, kingmen, with an MLK root that continued the lengthening pattern in the Book of Alma, but it is certainly much easier for us that he did not. Amalickiah Hayites could have been a legitimate but unwieldy alternative for another iteration of Amalekiahites. The Kingmen were mostly Mulekites, not only because of the obvious anglicized king in their name and their connection to previous similar groups, but also because the record references their, quote, high birth, end quote, and their claim to, quote, blood of nobility, end quote. There would be no rational basis for Lehites, to claim noble blood in the faces of the descendants of King Zedekiah of Judah. Descendants of Ishmael and Zoram would also need clearer credentials to claim noble blood. No other present groups could make claims to noble blood or high births, so it is clear these kingmen were Mulekites. When, quote, Moroni put an end to those kingmen, that there were not any known by the appellation of kingmen, end quote, he was primarily targeting Mulekites, not strictly because of their tribal identity, but because of the catastrophic effects of the politically destructive way they self-identified. As Captain Moroni explained to the chief judge in a letter, the political and spiritual destruction from their quote, stubbornness and their pride end quote, was imminent. Quote, Had it not been for the war which broke out among ourselves, yea, were it not for these kingmen who caused so much bloodshed among ourselves. Yea, at the time we were contending among ourselves, if we had united our strength as we hitherto have done, yea, had it not been for the desire of power and authority which those kingmen had over us, had they been true to the cause of our freedom and united with us and gone forth against our enemies, instead of taking up their swords against us, which was the cause of so much bloodshed among ourselves, yea, if we had gone forth against them in the strength of the Lord, we should have dispersed our enemies, for it would have been done according to the fulfilling of his word. But behold, now the Lamanites are coming upon us, taking possession of our lands, and they are murdering our people with the sword, yea, our women and our children, and also carrying them away captive, causing them that they should suffer all manner of afflictions, and this because of the great wickedness of those who are seeking for power and authority, yea, even those kingmen, It seems possible here that Moroni wasn't targeting all or only Mulekites, but just those who called themselves kingmen. However, Moroni had already stated that only people descended from Joseph were following the the title of liberty in Alma 46. He then related the selling of Joseph of Egypt, which Judah had participated in, to the bondage and potential sale of the Nephite descendants of Joseph by their brethren who would have likely been Judahite, the Mulekites. Taking this literally, Only members of the tribe of Joseph were actively fighting alongside Moroni early in the conflict. But not all Mulekites were fighting against them. Later, many Mulekites fought alongside Moroni, especially after Pahoran and Moroni united their forces. Connecting the Mulekites to the kingmen and then showing Moroni target the kingmen might erroneously open Moroni to accusations of genocide. Genocide is defined as, quote, the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group, end quote. However, genocide would be an inappropriate label for Moroni's actions for several reasons. First, as just mentioned, Moroni did not target all Mulekites. Most of the population were Mulekites by genealogy, but most of the population were against the kingmen. This is why these civil conflicts expanded and involved the Lamanites. The rebellious Mulekites could not get enough people with whom they shared ancestry to share a political identity. Therefore, it was not the bloodline but the political attitude that was the target. The fighting was directed at those who had openly called for betraying and overthrowing the free government and separating themselves socially with a claim of inherited entitlement to power. As Pahoran, the chief judge, explained in a written response to Moroni's letter, those who were against the Kingmen later in the conflict were called, quote, free men, end quote, not an ethnic designation. Second, Moroni was described as righteous in the strongest terms. One relevant way this was exemplified was that he frequently avoided unnecessary military killings repeated genocide was not part of his character profile. Finally and more technically, even though this rebellion was rhetorically justified based on family histories, they were both tribes of Israel. This was an intertribal but intra-genus dynastic struggle over internal order that the Mulekites were initiating and the Nephites were resisting. Moroni's efforts were ultimately successful and the Nephites and supportive Mulekites eventually defeated the Lamanite armies that had been led by Amalekiah and Emeron. The End of MLK Naming Patterns As seen later, Mulekites did survive this war, but importantly, Semitic MLK names were no longer found for characters in the Book of Mormon narrative after Moroni's persistent efforts made such proud names undesirable. The discontinuation of MLK names after this point may be evidence that the MLK naming pattern was being used at times as an indicator of political distinctness and opposition to the Nephites' decentralized political system. It often designated belonging to a, quote, faction, end quote. The repeated civil wars eventually required a drastic change in culture that extended to naming patterns among Mulekites. The statement that, quote, there were not any known by the appellation of kingmen, end quote, is Mormon's notice to the reader that no new characters in this record will have MLK names. This sudden ending of popular naming patterns after authoritative effort has precedence in the Bible. Hosea 2.17 states, quote, For I will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name, end quote. After this point, there was a sudden and permanent absence of Baal names among the tribe of Judah. Mulekite claims continue. Erasing the name did not end the tribal political habit, however. After this point, the next Mulekite who sought a throne over the Nephites took a Jaredite name, even though he was directly descended from Zedekiah. This is not a coincidence. Not only had the authoritative Mulekite name been discouraged, but the Jaredite names had been published. In the time between the end of the kingmen and the rise of Coriantumr, Helaman II had widely shared the record of the Jaredites, as his father had been instructed to do by Almas II. Earlier, Coriantumr was the name of an undefeated king among the Jaredites. His name would be an appropriate and politically useful title, for someone who decided that it was their right to reestablish monarchy, this Jaredite name also has an effect of distancing him from the mainstream Nephite culture. Jaredite names remained popular for the leaders of rebellious political movements after this point. Later, after Coriantumr's defeat, groups named quote, "Robbers of Gadianton" end quote, were justifying their predations and warfare in the name of recovering quote, their rights of government. End quote. It is possible they were referring to the same Mulekite claims as those who came before. This does not preclude the possibility that they were also using Lamanite claims when convenient. Dissenting robbers remained a problem in this era until Nephite and Lamanite societies combined in mutual defense and eliminated the robbers after they failed in a major assault. The final MLK name, Mulek, is the general name given to the land of the north where the Mulekites were first encountered, as opposed to the south where Lehi arrived. This name was relevant only in the time when all the Lehiite, Zoramite, Ishmaelite, and Mulekite peoples had united in peace before the time of Christ. This name, Mulek, was not used to refer to the land a generation later, after Jesus Christ had appeared to the inhabitants as recorded in Third Nephi 11. This appears to be because it was no longer relevant, as there is no indication that any self-aware Mulekites survived the more great and terrible destruction in the land northward that was caused by a combination of natural disasters at the time of the death of Christ. The idea that the Mulekite identity ended with the Great Destruction has textual evidence. There are several places in Scripture. Where the Mulekite presence is conspicuously absent after this destruction. Importantly, Christ specified that the survivors of the Great Destruction were descendants of Joseph in third Nephi fifteen twelve. If people who would have preferred to maintain a distinct Mulekite identity were present, descendants of Judah would have merited attention. Additionally, fourth Nephi one thirty seven through thirty eight. Mormon 1, eight and Doctrine and Covenants 3.17-18 through 18, each list tribes of Book of Mormon peoples after the Great Destruction, without distinguishing any Mulekites or people of Zarahemla. It seems likely that this incredible destruction impacted them so severely that only those Mulekites who felt more closely connected to a separate lineage survived. That is more likely than presuming that the above four references are each mistaken or incomplete. Overall, the presence of MLK names corresponded clearly with a time of political unrest and religious challenges that were related to Mulekite claims to the Israelite throne. The appearance of these names at the time of the discovery of the Mulekites and the ending of these names after Moroni eliminated the kingmen solidify the connection of the Mulekites to these MLK names. Unanswered questions. Some questions related to the presence and significance of MLK roots remain and are relevant to many of the above names and the Nephite political situations. One, why would some of these characters in the Book of Mormon coincidentally have names that correspond with their actions in the narrative? Two, why were the Mulekite political dissenters justifications for rebellion not explained more explicitly in the books of Mosiah, Alma, Helaman, and 3rd Nephi? 3. How does the Mulekite influence in the Book of Mormon inform the book as a whole? 4. How can the Nephite troubles with the Mulekites reflect their possible experiences with political propaganda? In the following sections, I examine each of these four questions in turn. Parents, Politics, and Historians. Question 1. Why would some of these characters in the Book of Mormon coincidentally have names that correspond with their actions in the narrative? Were these MLK names given at birth or adopted upon entering politics? If the names were given at birth, it could indicate a family desire to imitate ancestors, maintain distinct or distanced royal identities within the Nephite system, or even a desire to have a child acquire the throne. If it is an adopted name for society and politics, it could appropriately explain their behavior. In the case of Amalekiah and his followers, including the Amalekites, Amalekiahites, and the Kingmen, imitating the roles of one's namesake is a theme in the Book of Mormon. First, two important Mulekite characters in the story are Ammon the first and Ammon the second, whose remarkably similar adventures quote. Play key and interlinked roles in the unfolding of this macro narrative. It is through the eyes and ears of Ammon the first that readers first see and hear why monarchy needs to be abolished. Then Ammon the second plays his role in abolishing the monarchy by refusing to be king and by persuading thousands of Lamanites to embrace the ancient religion, the foundational myth and the new civic culture of the Nephites. End quote. Second, Helaman the third. "...explicitly reminded his sons, Lehi and Nephi, that he gave them their names to encourage them to imitate their namesakes. Quote, "...behold, I have given unto you the names of our first parents who came out of the land of Jerusalem. And this I have done, that when ye remember your names, you may remember them. And when ye remember them, ye may remember their works. And when ye remember their works, ye may know that it was is said, and also written, that they were good." Therefore, my sons, I would that you should do that which is good, that it may be said of you and also written, even as it has been said and written of them. Whether MLK names were given at birth or adopted, they could have indicated appropriate political titles for someone or a party of people who are actively trying to restore or seize a monarchy. The meaning of the name matches the role of the character, as observed by Hugh Nibley there is a supporting example of characters named after their roles and actions. Payankai, the son of Pahoran and pretender to the chief judgeship, has the same name as one of the best-known kings in Egyptian history, a contemporary of Isaiah and a chief actor in the drama of Egyptian history at a time in which that history was intimately involved in the affairs of Palestine. Yet his name, not mentioned in the Bible, remained unknown to scholars until the end of the 19th century. This Egyptian peyankai whose name means He, Ammon, is my life, was the son of one Kerahor. the vowels are guesses, the high priest of Ammon, who in a priestly plot set himself up as a rival of Pharaoh himself, while his son peyankai actually claimed the throne. This was 400 years before Lehi left Jerusalem, end quote. The similarity is that this Payankai and Karahor are in the same situation as some of these MLK names, in which their names reflect, in either history or meaning, the roles that they are taking in the narrative. Perhaps there is another explanation. Were some of these names given to these persons by Mormon for editorial reasons? Mormon, the prophet historian who edited, condensed and wrote notes upon a millennia of Nephite historical records to compile the Book of Mormon around AD 380, had a lot of material to cover. During the 13 years when Mormon had the Nephite records but was not engaged as a military commander, compare Mormon 311 and 51. He needed to read, organize and evaluate hundreds of records, summarize them, draft his copy prepare metal plates of sufficient size and quality for his initial copy, and then complete the final draft, leaving space for the near future. He did all of this while keeping an eye on his people's civil war and possibly relocating himself and his many records. If he created an editorial naming system for some characters in this period, which preceded his own by 450 years, he had that license. As Brant Gardner stated when speaking of the knee horse, Quote, I strongly suspect that it was called by some other name in the source plates, and that the identification of the order of the Nihors, quote is Mormon's label written long after the fact. End quote. Seeing some of these names as MLK-inspired editorial titles could help explain some of the naming patterns. For example, why Oliver Cowdery's variant spellings of the Amalekites listed earlier came to resemble the oncoming name Amalekiah, as noted by Royal Skousen. To Mormon, this would be like saying, here's another usurper with a group of Mulekites who wanted to become king. The names could resemble each other purposefully, and then sound similar when read out loud to emphasize the continuity of their role as a pattern. Mormon used much of his history to record patterns, especially the pride cycle. It is not necessary to view some of these names as editorial titles, as the characters could have adopted these titles themselves for the same reasons. In any case, it is not reasonable that Joseph Smith or his scribes could have been the originators of this MLK naming pattern. Hidden Contexts Question 2 why were the Mulekite political dissenters' justifications for rebellion not explained more explicitly in the books of Mosiah, Alma, Helaman, and 3rd Nephi? The most obvious answer is that Mormon had very little space in which to record a thousand years of spiritual lessons gleaned from their history. Related to this, by the time that Mormon was compiling these records and writing about them, the Mulekites may have been non-existent for nearly 350 years. The wars the Nephites and Lamanites fought during Mormon's lifetime gave no other obvious reference to Mulekites or their claims unless one considers opposition to the Church. Mulekite irrelevance to the political and religious environment of Mormon's day might contribute to the lack of repeated explicit description of their political motivations during the reign of judges as Mormon read back through Nephite history and summarized what was important in his opinion. Val Larson suggests... That perhaps the initial, uh, d- delete that. Val Larson suggests that perhaps the omission was intentional. Quote, Mormon leaves Mulakite justifications unstated, probably because it is so plausible that stating it might leave readers ambivalent about the conflict between the judges and the revanchist Amlicite slash Amalekite kingmen. Mormon reveals What was surely a key political fact and the strongest argument of the Mulekites, that they descended from Mulek, a son of Zedekiah, only after the land of Zarahemla has fallen into the hands of the Lamanites, delete that, only after the land of Zarahemla has fallen into the hands of the Lamanites and thereby weakened any Mulekite claim to the throne. Mormon's faith and political sympathies prevent him from sympathetically articulating the point of view of the Amlicites, but his integrity as a historian compels him to report sufficient information for us to reconstruct the motives of those whose views Mormon reprehends, End quote. If explicitly omitting Mulekite justifications was intentional, it may be for the same purpose that Christ had in mind when he taught in parables to those who knew him in his mortality. Scripture is a gift that keeps on giving. There is more to learn, quote, by study and also by faith, end quote, for those who seek to, quote, remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon, end quote. Taking a broader view. Question three. How does the Mulekite influence in the Book of Mormon inform the book as a whole? Mormon obviously emphasized the time of the Mulekites in his record. The political and spiritual challenges posed by the Mulekites mirrored the challenges Mormon faced in his own day. In the words of Mormon, the insert between the books of Omni and Mosiah, Mormon interrupts the Nephite narrative as soon as the Mulekites are introduced. He describes how King Benjamin struggled against, quote, much contention and many dissensions away unto the Lamanites, end quote. These spiritual and political issues required that, quote, King Benjamin, by laboring with all the might of his body and the faculty of his whole soul, and also the prophets, did once more establish peace in the land, end quote. One of the purposes of this interruption in the narrative might be to indicate that patterns of political and spiritual trouble were coming in the story. And that only relentless missionary work could solve it. He gives a summary of several books to come. He started that theme with the above quote. After this introduction, the book of Mosiah first focuses on Benjamin's continued efforts in this regard, chapters one through six, then focuses on a Nephite attempt to escape the society that had merged with the Mulekites, chapters seven through 22. The text Next explains the solution that the Nephite kings had found for managing two deeply different societies that were sharing a political system. The solution was in chapter 29. For the Nephites, it would have been a political marriage motivated by necessity, since the Nephites needed more manpower to remain free from the Lamanites. Remaining free from subjugation by Mulekites would require constant internal and external missionary work as exemplified repeatedly by the books of Alma, Helaman, and 3rd Nephi. This was especially true when the Mulekites joined the Lamanites, Amlicites, or harnessed them, Amalekiahites, and kingmen. Mormon began the book of Alma by stating Mosiah, quote, had established laws and they were acknowledged by the people. Therefore, they were obliged to abide by the laws which he had made, end quote. Quote, the main narrative thread of the book, Then focuses on the conflict between those who accept and those who reject this obligation. Once Nehor resorted to violence to enforce his spiritual dissension, and Alma responded with a legal use of state violence, this opened the Nehorite Mulekite rhetorical field to claims that Alma martyred Nehor, and therefore the only way to dislodge the hegemonic anti-Mulekites was with violence. Missionaries had to therefore ensure most of the combined Mulekite-Nephite society believed in Christ as opposed to Nehorite ideas. When the Amulonites slash Amalekites embraced Nehorite ideas, and when Zoramites began drifting into Nehorite beliefs, missionaries needed to try to convert them back, which gave dissenters excuses to spark further fighting. Bringing believing Lamanites into the Nephite fold, such as the Ammonites, was also a political necessity. In terms of Nephite politics during the reign of Judges, Mormon probably found additional relevance to his own day in the repeated dynamic of Nephite pride leading to internal and external conflict, as found in Alma, Helaman, and 3rd Nephi. This is clear from his emphasis on how that dynamic played out in his own time. From Benjamin's day until the coming of Christ, missionary work was the key to liberty, While it did spark excuses for war in the case of those who already wished to dominate the Nephites, it proved itself to be the key to victory. An aspect of correct belief that Mormon consistently emphasized throughout the record was the dynamic of divine justice and divine mercy. While including the precise dynamic in Alma 42, he also warns against the Nehorite overemphasis on mercy. The Neharite beliefs that spread to the Amulonites, Lamanites, and Zoramites disparaged justice and taught that sin did not exist and that sin could not prevent salvation. After the resurrected Christ taught the gospel that replaced the law of Moses, Mormon continued to emphasize both justice and mercy, making it clear that the eventual destruction of the Nephites was a result of sin. Along with describing the spiritual health of the Nephites and linking that health to their performance in war, Mormon emphasized the struggles of righteous leaders during the reign of the judges and his own day. They were in a quasi-democratic system, challenged by internal disagreements that expanded into external conflict. Mormon's 13-year sabbatical from leading the Nephite armies gave him a chance to review how his struggles with leading the Nephites were preceded by others in similar positions. When Mormon read the story of Captain Moroni during that time, he related well even though four centuries separated them. They both tried to maintain the political liberty of a people that struggled constantly with being faithful to the Lord in the face of overwhelming military challenges. It is no surprise that he would name his own son Moroni. Like Captain Moroni, Mormon believed that ending a civil war and establishing civilized behavior was a prerequisite for victory in external warfare. During Mormon's second attempt at preserving the liberty and lives of the Nephites as their leader, he was unable to act as Captain Moroni did with the Mulekites in eliminating the dissenting elements that were inviting the warfare. Quote, oh, the depravity of my people, they are without order and without mercy behold i am but a man and i have but the strength of a man and i cannot any longer enforce my commands" End quote. also unlike captain moroni mormon was ultimately unsuccessful at establishing internal order and preserving his people in further contrast in captain moroni's time the political rhetoric against the nephites had a strong element of demanding rights that are based on inheriting authority to rule the israelites In Mormon's day, robbers of Gadianton combined with Lamanites, Ishmaelites, and Lemuelites against the Nephites. Their stated motivations seemed to be vanity, pride, and differences in wealth. For Mormon, likely, the contrast between the political rhetoric of Moroni's day and his own was either not important enough to become explicit, or was made explicit through the MLK editorial naming pattern. As far as how Mormon's own identity factored into his telling of history, Mormon did describe himself as, quote, a pure descendant of Lehi, and much as the children of Lehi have kept his commandments, he hath blessed them and prospered them according to his word, end quote. Mormon made extensive references to Israelites in general, but he was not as concerned to retell the history and lessons of the Mulekite tribe of Judah. For him, the important pattern to document was how the Mulekites might have played the same role as the Lamanites did in his own day. Quote, if it so be that the Lamanites rebel against the Lord, the Lamanites shall be a scourge unto the Nephites to stir them up in their ways of remembrance. End quote. This was appropriate since his record was primarily about bringing Israelites back to the covenant through Christ rather than retelling the secular history of Israelite tribes. Rhetoric in Nephite politics. Question four: How can the Nephite troubles with the Mulekites reflect their possible experiences with political propaganda? Mormon's record does not dwell on political lessons at the expense of spiritual lessons, but it does contain political lessons. A possible lesson learned from the patterns of Mulekite-Nephite interactions is the danger of grievance-based propaganda when it is based on differences of identity and sin. As noted above, for Amlesai and Amalekiah to quickly create large followings, and for Moroni to have to put down kingmen three times, there needed to be serious grievances that were nursed regularly. These grievances, like we had three main rhetorical threads that intersected first, repressed authoritative rights to rule in the name of King David. Any Mulekite could relate to this right, especially when it was used for propaganda purposes. 2. Repressed Nehrite rights. The Nehrites could have claimed that the combined church-state regime martyred their founder and sent state representatives to continue to weaken their beliefs, destabilize their social structures, and ruin their priestcraft. This would result in taking away their source of wealth and social power. Third, An emotional threat from church teachings. Christ-centered teachings about justice and mercy directly undermined the Nehrite beliefs in proudly justifying sin. With these threads, Mulekite usurpers could appeal to ethos, logos, and pathos. As seen above in the cases of Amalekiah, Amaron, and the robbers of Gadianton, these intersected threads could then be tailored to, or expanded for, whichever group the rebellion's leaders sought support from except from strong believers. Whether it was Lamanites, Nephites, Zoramites, or Mulekites, Mormon showed in the books of Alma and Helaman that these groups could either be faithful and peaceful or destructive of faith in society. All could be taught either to act to preserve their faith and liberties or to be convinced to deny them to others. Summary and Conclusions This essay argues that the presence of MLK-root Semitic names correlated to a specific time in the Book of Mormon narrative. The Semitic root word for king appeared in people's names in the Book of Mormon narrative starting when the Mulekites were discovered by the Nephites in the Book of Omni. King names then appeared frequently during the time in the narrative in which there were attempts to reestablish a monarchy during the early reign of the judges. Sometimes these Mulekite names pertain to individuals who are actively working to establish themselves as kings. King names disappeared after, quote, Moroni put an end to those kingmen that there were not any known by the appellation of kingmen, This linguistic correlation demonstrates that Mulekite claims to the Nephite throne were based on perceived rights to the Israelite throne from King Zedekiah and that these claims were a major factor in the civil and external wars that threatened Nephite society during their reign of the judges. Initial implications of recognizing Mulekites as a source of consistent political complications during the reign of the judges highlight the political skills and struggles of King Benjamin, King Mosiah II, Captain Moroni, and Mormon. Nephite-Mulekite struggles make the story of the Book of Mormon more coherent and comprehensible and prepare the reader to better make applications to our lives and times. Author's note, I express thanks to my father, who taught me to treasure exegesis, my mother, who sacrificed to help me study in the Middle East, my supportive wife, and also the thoughtful reviewers and patient editors. Lyle H. Hamblin was raised in Arizona and earned a BA in history from BYU-Idaho, attended the BYU-Jerusalem Center, and earned an MA in Near Eastern Studies emphasizing Arabic from the University of Arizona. Lyle served his mission in Virginia, has taught school for the last decade, and teaches economics and history in Maricopa, Arizona, where he lives with his wife and four children, and enjoys serving in the church. This has been a recording of Proper Names and Political Claims, Semitic Echoes as Foundations for Claims to the Nephi Throne, by Lyle Hamblin, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, volume number 60, 2024, read by Lyle Hamblin. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, a wide array of additional resources, can be found at foundation.org.